is Angela Treat Lyon and Daring Dreamers Radio at IDareYouRadio.com, where you find massive inspiration, powerful support, and uncommon resources for you daring dreamers. We are a proud member of the Amazing Women of Power Radio Network, powered by Raven International at AmazingWomenOfPower.com. I invite you to join me every Wednesday as we're on the air by going to AWOP Talk. 247.com and click the on the air button for our Daring Dreamers radio broadcast. My guest today is Maria Speth. She's a gal I met at a top-level CEO retreat and I am so pleased she could join us. She's a lawyer and an author whose specialty is helping people protect their intellectual property. So coaches, authors, speakers, artists, entrepreneurs, whatever you are, Listen up, because this is some really important information. And if you share images online, especially through Facebook, this is really important for you because you need to be really careful the images you share, and you'll find out why when I talk to Maria. So, Maria, I just want to welcome you. Thank you so much for taking time to come with us today. You are very welcome. I just want to get right to it because I know that your time is precious. So the thing that I would really, really love to result from today is somebody feeling empowered in hiring somebody like you to do what you do without feeling like they're going to get ripped off or they don't know what's going to happen or that they won't get the results that they want to get. What kind of question can I ask you that would help you give us an answer to that? I, mean, I think it's a value question. I think the question would be, what value do you bring to a business owner? You don't know what you don't know, and in a short period of time and a you know a limited amount of money, you have the whole ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure kind of thing. That I can give you all of the information that you need to lay the right foundation in your company, so that as you move forward, you know that you've done it right, and which in the long run it can save sometimes tens and tens of thousands of dollars. So my goal in life is to is have happy clients and paid customers. And I only get that with, with with customers who feel like they've gotten value from what I've provided to them. And so that down the road, if things come up, they've got, again, that right that foundation built the right way and they can feel that they're as protected as they can be. What kind of things do you do for people that you can deliver that kind of value? Well, it depends on what the client's business model is. Most of my clients are heavy, heavy into intellectual property. They're either web-based businesses or they are writers or they're creators in some way, maybe software developers, high-tech companies. And so the way that I usually approach that is to look at their situation, their company, and say, what is it in the main areas of intellectual property and internet law that you need to know to do right in your business right from the beginning. Most importantly, I listen and I understand their business model and what they're doing and how in their business they might have intellectual property issues that they don't realize. I look at it as a partnership. They're the experts on their business. I'm the expert in intellectual property. We put the two together. You help me learn your business. I help you learn intellectual property. Now you've got all of the tools you need. I'm imagining you're talking about copyrights and stuff like that. Am I correct in that? Well, there's four areas of intellectual property. There's trademarks, trade secrets, copyrights, and patents. I help people with all of those things. Um, When I say I help with patents, I actually don't register patents. I help you figure out if a patent is right for you, and if it is, I put you in the right hands. Many people call me and they'll say, I think I need a patent, and and we'll kind of explore that and say, well, let's, let's make sure that's really what you need. 
the key is figuring out where the value lies in the product that you create. And if the value is in the content, and we are talking about copyrights, if the value is in the brand, you're creating a service and a brand that people will recognize and that's a trademark. If the value is in some unique formula or method that you're using, then it might be protected by a, a, either a patent or a trade secret. Okay, so what is the difference between a patent and a trade secret? Well, one of the main differences is that a trade secret will last forever and a patent will expire in 20 years. So the Coca-Cola formula was kept a trade secret as opposed to being patented. And because it was kept a trade secret, it's still a trade secret 100 years later. If it had been patented, it would have been public domain. So many people think that patents are more valuable than trade secrets because they are much more expensive. So you figure, well, if it's more expensive, it's probably more. Not necessarily true. If you can keep something a trade secret, it is the way to go. But the reality is many, many things cannot be kept a trade secret. So if I've created some invention that you could pull apart, take it apart, and figure out how it works, well, then trade secret's not going to help me because you can pull the invention, invention apart and figure out how it works. So a trade secret's not an option for me. In that case, the only option is a patent. So in many, many cases, trade secret's just not an option. It's perfect for formulas that can't be reverse engineered. It's perfect for back-end methods or trainings or a way of doing things in the back-end where you only have to train a, a small number of people. Nobody quite knows how you're doing it. For instance, the way that Google does their algorithms, the way that Google figures out how they're going to rank the results when you put in a search term, that's a classic example of a very, very valuable trade secret that they wouldn't want a patent because they wouldn't want the world to see it and know it, and they wouldn't want it to expire. Because the other problem with a patent is uh, it is a full disclosure, and you don't always want that. So if it can be kept a trade secret, tra trade secrets are wonderful, but many, many things just cannot be kept a trade secret. Full disclosure, that means they have to put on paper everything about it. Yes. In order to get a patent, a patent is basically a contract with the government. And in exchange for you getting a monopoly, what you're giving to the government is full disclosure of the invention or the process or the method in such detail that somebody skilled in the field would be able to reinvent it or do it. The whole point of the patent system is to spur on innovation. We want other people to go, oh, that's really cool. I see how that works and I can make it better. Some people look at that and say, well, I think that's just wrong. You know, my patent ended up being worthless because they just improved it. Actually, that's exactly what the system is meant to do. A lot of people don't realize that Thomas Jefferson had so many patents because he worked for the patent office. And he would look at other people's patents and say, oh, I can do that even better. And he would improve on it. And that's actually a good thing because that's how we spur on innovation. I'm confused because I thought that a patent was supposed to protect you. Well, it protects you for exactly what you're doing. But it will not protect you if somebody has a better idea. It's like you're saying to everyone else, here's exactly how I do it. And then if that other person says, ah, I have an idea how to change it, make it better, then they can get a patent on the way that they made it better. Now, the good news is if they're taking everything that you do and then just adding something to it, they can get a patent, but they can't go sell the product without your help, which is why we see cross licenses all the time. So I like to use my example of a pen. Let's say I was the first person to put ink inside of a pen. Well, I have a patent on the method of putting ink inside the pen so that the old-fashioned way of dipping it in the inkwell wasn't working so well. So I'm putting it inside the pen. So that's my patent. And then you come along and you discover that, well, if I put a little retractable clicking device on the pen, then I can make the point of the pen go away so it doesn't write on things when you don't want it to if it's in your shirt pocket or whatever. And so now you have a patent on the retractable point. 
and I have a patent on the ink in the inside. Well, you can't sell the pen without me, and I can't sell the pen without you because I have the right to stop you from selling a pen that has ink inside of it, and you used to have the right to stop me from selling a pen that has a retractable point. But together, we could sell the pen. So it is a very valuable thing to have, and it does, in fact, do exactly what it's supposed to do, which is encourage innovation and working together. Hmm. So anybody can go in and look at patents and look at the disclosure and say, wow, that's cool, and I can make it better? Yes, absolutely. Wow. But a trade secret obviously, is a trade secret, we can't go in there and say, oh, that's neat because we can't find it. We can't figure out what you're doing. Yeah. It seems like a a conundrum because if you're going to say, here's my trade secret for my Coca-Cola recipe and not disclose what that is, how does the government even know that there is a recipe? They don't. The, The world knows there's a recipe because we taste it, we see it, we hear it. But nobody knows what it is, and there is no registration process. They're not sending it into any governmental authority. They're not doing anything with it except keeping it a secret. One of the beautiful things about a trade secret is I always tell people it's as simple as the second-grade rule. If you don't want anybody to know, don't tell them. And so it's very low-tech in the sense that it's not expensive. You share it on a need-to-know basis, and if you need to share it with somebody, you have to have a confidentiality agreement with them. That's the way you protect a trade secret, and that's why we see NDAs and non-disclosure agreements all the time, or confidentiality agreements. Oh, I see. So it's, it's not even registered then. Correct. So I could have this big secret process and simply share it with maybe one or two people who need to know it, and nobody else would know it, and they'd have to sign a non-disclosure. And the other thing I would do is I would always put it down on paper and mark it as confidential, and then keep it in a very safe place. You don't want to keep it in your head. Some people think, well, the safest place for my trade secret is in my head. Well, not really, because that means that if something happens to you, the trade secret's gone. So you want to put it down on paper and then mark it confidential and keep it in a very, very safe place. People ask me about copyrights all the time because I help people build books. So what they ask me is, if I create a book and it's an e-book, do I need an ISBN? Should I register it with the U.S. Copyright Office? What should I do about my e-book? Not a print book, an e-book. The answer is yes. You should treat your e-book just like you treat printed books as far as the law. You should definitely get an ISBN, and it should be different than your print version of the book. And you absolutely should register the copyright even more so than in a print publication because it's so much easier to copy. One common misconception about copyrights is that people think that in order to get the copyright, you have to register it. Actually, and you may know this, but copyrights are automatic. As soon as I put it down on paper, I automatically have a copyright in the content. But the registration process is very, very important, not to give me a copyright because I already have a copyright, but to give me some rights and remedies that I didn't already have. And it's also very inexpensive. You can register your own copyrights at copyright.gov. It is only $35 to register it. And they have some videos on the copyright.gov website that will walk you through how to do it. And then there's books out there, like my book has a chapter in it on how to register a copyright. But there's, there's lots of options to just go read up on it yourself, and it's not difficult to do. It's, if you're going to do a trademark registration, that can be very complicated and maybe even deceivingly compl- complicated. Some people think they can do it themselves, and it, and it turns out to be a mess. Copyright's much more straightforward. You're basically filling out your name, your address, the date of publication. The hardest part is figuring out whether or not it's been published because publication has a very specific definition. And believe it or not, one of the hardest questions is who is the author? 
Hey, what? <laughs> the reason that that is one of the most difficult questions is because author is a defined term. Like publication, it's a defined term, and the author is going to be the person who wrote it unless that person was employed by someone else either as an employee or through a work-for-hire agreement. And so let's say you want to write a book, but you're not a good writer, and so you have me ghostwrite it. If I sign a work-for-hire agreement, a written agreement that says that I am writing this as a work-for-hire, I have changed the definition of author from me to you. You become the author of that agreement under our work-for-hire agreement. Now, if we just have a verbal agreement, then I'm still the author and I still own the copyright because verbal agreements do not transfer copyrights. But if we have a written agreement, a written work for hire, or if I'm your actual employee, then the author is the employer or the person who was the author under the work for hire agreement. So many people get that wrong. Like, for instance, they'll have a company, they'll form a company, they're an employee of their own company, and they list themselves as the author when in, when in fact their company was the author. Wow, I'm so glad you told us that. That's really fascinating. Okay, so what about for an artist? For instance, I'm just terribly prolific, and, and I'll pump out painting after painting after painting. I'm not going to spend $35 on every painting to copyright register it. What do you do in a, in a case like that? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say if you're going to sell that painting for any decent money, then you probably do want to register the copyright. But like everything else, and this is one of the things that one of the value added things that I like to provide to my clients. I'm not going to tell you to spend $500 on a consult to me to do a contract that you're going to make $300 off of. That would make no sense. And you know, similarly, what are you selling the paintings for? If the price point of the paintings is not high enough, obviously it's not going to be worth it for you to register the copyright on them. You'll just sign them. You'll know that you do have copyrights. You just don't have extensive remedies like you would. And you'll just go forward without registering them. On the other hand, if your price point is high enough that the $35 is worth it, then you'll, then you'll do it. It's a cost-benefit analysis. It's a really tough question when you ask it, in terms of paintings, but if you were to ask it in terms of photographs, it's a much easier question because the Copyright Office does have a way of registering all of your photographs that you took all year long in one registration, which is beautiful. But they don't have such a thing for paintings, paintings unfortunately. <laughs> I had no idea you could do that with photographs. Yes, yes, which is really nice. And then, like, for instance, another one is poetry. You know, poets say to me, well, I, I write so many poems. I say, okay, well, put them together in a book and then register the whole book. Don't just necessarily just register the one poem because you're not going to sell the one poem individually. You're going to sell a book of poems. So, so let's register the whole book. Or a collection of artwork that really goes together as a collection and is sold as a collection, you would register those together. But you don't want to register a bunch of paintings together if you're selling them individually. I wonder if you could put together a book of images of your paintings. Would that cover the copyright for the painting itself? It would, but if you really were selling the painting separately and you never really sold the book, one of my arguments if I was adverse to you would be that your copyright registration really wasn't done correctly because you didn't really ever sell a book of paintings. You just made it for the copyright office. Ah, uh, I see. If you, were selling a, if you really were selling a book of paintings, then yes, absolutely. Another question about paintings. With the proliferation of people sharing images online, how would somebody address the copyright issue? For instance, I've got a whole slew of images on Facebook. They are marked with my copyright name and date, but I see a lot of people out there who have no copyright, no name, no date, anything on their images. Right. And all of a sudden they're claiming, hey, you use my image, it's copyrighted. Well, it isn't marked. 
How do you address it? It doesn't have to be marked. You have to assume any time that you take anything off the Internet, it is copyright protected unless it's specifically been released to the public domain. And, And I don't mean I've posted it on the Internet. Many people think, well, you post it on the Internet, that means it's in the public domain. That is incorrect. If I put an image on the Internet, it is not permission for you to use it, even if I don't mark it with my copyright notice. So the way we have to look at this is, do not use anyone else's artwork off the Internet or anywhere without permission because unless it specifically says anybody can use this, then it is copyright protected. And it's very deceiving because when I, you know, I go on Google Images and I do a search for an image, it just shows me this little thumbnail and I don't even know where it came from and I think, well, that must be free. Well, it isn't. <laughs> and it's really quite a trap for the unwary. I've had many, many cases I don't want to say cases like a lawsuit because it's a letter-writing campaign where my clients have been accused of copyright infringement, and either they didn't do it at all. In other words, their web developer may have done it when they developed their website, or they did it but had no idea they were doing anything wrong. But it doesn't matter because under the statute, it's a strict liability, and it's your responsibility even if your web developer did it. So it's it's a little bit of a scary thing, and, and the answer is don't use anybody else's work without permission. Uh, even if you think it's it's out there and it's free, because it's not. Hmm. Interesting, because there's so many. I'm sure you've seen them. All the images on Facebook and MySpace and Pinterest and all those places where images fly around like cornflakes. So what happens if you wanted to use an image that you found and you can't find the artist? You just simply not use it. I wouldn't. If I couldn't find who had the rights to it, I would not use it. Um, and of course, I'm more careful than most people. <laughs> uh, but, but I mean, I've seen so many instances where, for instance, there's a company called Getty Images, and Getty is one mm-hmm. of the clearinghouses, and they're very, very aggressive. And if you use an image that's in, in their library, they're not just going to send you a notice that says don't do it. They're going to send you a notice that says stop doing it and pay us $5,000 or whatever they think the value is. And they're pretty adamant about it. They don't roll over real easily, and they make a lot of money off of dinging people under the copyright law because two different issues. One is removing copyright notices, which is a separate violation, and one is just using the image. And the other thing is very similar question to the one you asked that I get very often is, well, what if I give credit? What if I, if I want to quote this chapter of this book extensively, and I say I'm quoting the chapter of the book, I've given credit. Well, that's the difference between plagiarism and copyright infringement. It's plagiarism if you don't give credit, but it's still copyright infringement even if you do give credit. So you won't be plagiarizing if you give credit, but you still will be committing copyright infringement. The only way around that is, in fact, to get permission, unless it's fair use. Now, I want to be very, very careful about the whole fair use concept because it is not a black and white this is fair use, this isn't. It's very, very gray. But I will tell you what is almost always fair use. If I want to use a single line from either a a speech or a book, and I'm only literally using a sentence, and I'm giving credit, it's very, 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 very likely fair use. However, if that single line is from a song, that may not be fair use. So fair use is a real tricky subject. So I always say, when in doubt, get permission. (laughs) People say, well, when in doubt, go ask your attorney. No, go get permission. It's way cheaper to go get permission than to ask me. (laughs) and, And getting permission is not as hard as people think it is. You don't necessarily have to pay them money. 
usually it's a win-win situation. You send them an email and you say, I'd love to use your work. I'd love to quote it. I think that it would be great for you if I quote it. And, you know, what do you think? And often people will write you back and say, that would be wonderful. Please don't modify it. Please make sure you give me credit, whatever. Yeah, I've done that myself, you know, when people ask to use my artwork. Well, let me get back to that image one because I think maybe you might have misheard me. And I'll give you an example to, um, to illustrate what I, what I said. I used an image from Getty, it's so funny you would mention them, on one of my Facebook pages, but I kept the copyright and Getty name on that. That's not okay? Not okay. Not okay. Good to not know. Okay. I will go remove no, it. No, no wait. When you, when you used it from Getty, did you, did you pay for a license for it? Nope. Oh, no. Yeah, no, then it's not okay. Now, okay. They, they have a licensing mechanism where you could have you know, paid for it, then you would have been fine. I had no idea. They are, the, they are the most aggressive ones, so be, do be careful. I will go in right after we talk and take it down. <laughs> Woo, I don't want to get nailed. Yeah, yeah. So what else do you see quite commonly in, in your business would help people understand? I think the, probably the most common misconception that I see from business owners is the belief that if I paid for it, I must own it. Because in the tangible world, that's true. If I hire you to build a cabinet for me, I own the cabinet. If I hire you to build a house for me, I own the house, et cetera, et cetera. So in the tangible world, that's true. But in the intangible world, it's not. So if I hire you to design a logo, and I'm just going like, to give you a whole slew of examples, design a logo, take a photograph, write code for you know, a website, develop a website, ghostwrite something for me, you know, do copywriting as in text writing, et cetera, et cetera, any kind of creative work that you can think of. I don't own it unless I get something in writing from you that says I own it. Otherwise, you own it, even though I paid for it. And I'm basically just licensing it from you. And that license may be far more restrictive than you want it to be. A common example is I hire a graphic designer to design a logo for me. I love the logo. I'm very happy. I order my business cards from the graphic designer in my letterhead, and I do that for two years, and then the graphic designer raises his prices on his letterhead and cards, or, or maybe I just figured out I can get them way cheaper at uh, Kinko's. And so I just thought I'm going to go buy my business cards at Kinko's, and I'm going to take that logo. I violated the copyright that the graphic artist has in my logo. I thought I owned it, right? I think I owned it because I paid for it. But, and this is a very, very common misconception. But in fact, I was really just licensing it from him. And in, inherent in that license is that I would buy the tangible products from him. And if I go buy them from Kinko's, I'm very likely violating that license. And I see this in the context of websites. People get websites developed, and then they move to a different host, and, and they get sued for moving to a different host. Very, very common misconception. So an important thing to remember is if you want to own what somebody is creating for you, you must have a written agreement that says that, that says that you are going to own it. Oh, my goodness. I had no idea that as a graphic, oh, my God, where have I been? <laughs> <laughs> I thought that when somebody bought the design of a logo from me, that that was it, that they owned it, it was theirs, they got to use it. Not if you didn't put something in writing, transferring or assigning the copyright to them. They have a right as a license, but they don't own it. That's very, very common misconception that I get. And that can be little or that could be huge. I mean, you could spend an enormous amount of money on a website and find out, you know, that your written agreement doesn't even say that you own it. Wow, that could be really a drag. Oh, wow. Okay, so, oh, I'm, I'm stunned here, and I shouldn't be because as a designer, I should know these things, shouldn't I? Well, and most people don't, so don't feel bad. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> very, very common. Okay. Most people don't, you know, because it's it's counterintuitive. Yeah, it really is. You know, I hire you. I expect the work to be mine. Right. Okay. So, Maria, what is something that would help people in their business in the intellectual property field here that you've been talking about that we don't know about that would really help us to either accelerate or improve our businesses or legality of the things that we're doing or something that's inspiring? Well, I think an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. So I would say that if you're in a field where you're playing with intellectual property, where it's important to your business, which is more and more the case. Most people aren't opening up mom-and-pop grocery store anymore. Most of them are playing online, and you know, intangible assets have become where it's at, right, in the information technology age. And so if you're in that field, I would say spend a little bit of money up front to consult with an attorney, find out what you don't know, to get a good foundation and a good groundwork like we talked about earlier, to know what you should know. It's so important because... Although I make most of my money as a litigator and really where the big money is for lawyers like me is, and what I really love to do is courtroom work and being in disputes and being in litigation, I always want my client to either not be in that situation or to be in the best position they could be in if it does happen. So it's frustrating to me when I see really good business people who are stuck in litigation that shouldn't be there. It would have been so easy to avoid. And so even though in the long run it would be, you know, to my best interest to say, oh, yeah, do it all wrong and then come to see me afterwards. On the other hand, I don't mind earning a portion of my living by helping people to prevent the problems because it's so much less expensive and it's so much more rewarding to know, okay, I'm helping you set this up right to begin with so that you won't have a problem. A lot of people don't want to deal with it until it becomes a problem. And so something goes wrong, they've gotten the demand letter, they're in some sort of lawsuit or they're being threatened with a lawsuit or somebody's violating their rights, and then they come to me. And sure, I love that stuff. That's great for me, but it's not great for the client. And so try doing it right from the outset and really save yourself a lot of heartburn down the road. Well, that sure makes a lot of sense. Okay, so if you had 30 minutes to live and you had a message that you were really passionate about and you wanted to make sure that people got it, what would that message be? That message would be do what you love and love what you do. Because, And when I say do what you love, I mean career-wise. All of life, of course. Most people don't have any problem doing what they love and loving what they do outside of their job, but too many people have jobs that aren't their passion, that aren't what they love. I feel like I never go to work a day in my life because I love what I do. And I've heard the phrase, do what you love and the money will come. Pick something in your life that you love to do and make a living out of it. And if you're in a field that you're not living your passion, find a way to change that because... Life is just too short, and it's too uncertain. People who complain and don't change their circumstances, I just want to say to them, whoa, hold on a second. You are in complete control. It's completely within your power to do what you love. What's stopping you? Nothing. You know, don't tell me money because that's not an excuse because it just isn't. <laughs> you know, everybody can find a way to make a living out of doing what they love. How refreshing to hear that. <laughs> As somebody who does what she loves every single day, it's like, as a child, I was told, oh, artists don't make money. You're just going to get married and make babies, and why should we send you to art school? Because you'll just give it up, blah, blah, blah. And I had to fight in order to make a living as an artist. Mm -hmm. And I had to fight hard to do it for many, many years. It was because I had to fight those internal 
messages that now are in my head instead of in my parents' bodies right. and uh, all of that. So to hear somebody say, well, do what you love, what exactly do you mean it's not the money? You, you know, how can I do it if I don't have the money, Maria? Well, I've never heard of one passion that couldn't be monetized somehow. I just think there's a way to monetize just about every passion that I could think of. I just think there is a way. You just have to figure out what it is. Clearly, if there's something that you love and appreciate about what you do, then other people must appreciate it too. And so you can enrich other people's lives by it in some way or another. Right on. That's so correct. In my experience, you know, just in the past few years when I've changed over to being a coach and a radio show host, I never realized that using my voice could be something I could do for a living. Right. And if industry for it, create one. <laughs> you know? Yeah. How did you figure out you wanted to be a lawyer? It was one of those, you know, people kept telling me that I was very argumentative. And <laughs> just, all my life I was like, you're always arguing with people, you should be a lawyer. <laughs> See, do what you love, right? Well, I love to argue with people, I might as well make money at it. <laughs> oh, that's really funny. I love it. just want to thank you so much, Maria, for being my guest today. It's been an eye-opener for me as an artist and a writer. And I know there's going to be an eye-opener for a lot of people as far as the images on Facebook and stuff go. And and I, I know it's going to really resonate with my audience. So I'm very grateful for you taking time to come with us today. You are very welcome. Thanks, Angela. In order to find Maria and her work, if you need some help with intellectual property protection or litigation, please go to Maria. Speth, S-P-E-T-H-I-P, lawyer.com. Maria Speth, I-P, lawyer.com. So this has been Angela Treat Lyon. Thank you so much for joining me today on Daring Dreamers Radio and Maria Speth at mariaspeth, I-P, lawyer.com. I implore you, please, don't take normal for one more second. Be audacious, bodacious, outrageous, and as bold and alive as you could possibly be. And we'll see you on the next show next week. 